I'm so confused of what's going on in the news. U.S. home prices are rising again at the fastest pace in 15 years. What does that mean? Hi, I'm Allison. And I'm Rocco. And that was Shreyas you just heard there. We're part of FAIR, and this is the Irrational Expectations podcast. Each episode, Shreyas picks out an article from the Daily News that's going confused. Allison and I are here to help him. Today's episode, uh, similar to last episode, we're using the same article, actually, because last episode, we got a bit off track into what I would consider a pretty interesting discussion, actually. But I still want to talk about U.S. home prices. So just for refreshing everyone who's listening, the article is titled U.S. Home Prices Rise at Fastest Pace in 15 Years. And this article is by the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, home prices are have been on the rise. And this is reflecting on how fiercely buyers are competing for a limited supply of homes in nearly every part of the country from small uh, places to larger cities. And so the median home price currently is over 300k, which is um, actually really, really high. So I would just like to ask some questions about that. I remember last time I asked a bit about mortgage rates, and I asked about what's included in the definition of home. But additionally, I would want to ask about um, home constructions. So the article does mention that new home construction is lagging behind demand and homeowners are holding onto their houses for longer. A big reason for this is a pandemic. Simultaneously, though, the pandemic increased demand since people feel they can move to locations where they can work remotely and farther from their offices while decreasing the likelihood for owners to sell their houses since interest rates are low and so people feel the need to stay put and refinance. So I assume there are demographically different populations, but I have some important questions about this. First, why would people feel the need to hold on to their homes when they can sell it for a higher price? Well, because essentially due to the fact that their homes have increased in price, it's a general market increasing in the price. So what you're really having here is their home is worth more, but all the other homes are worth more. So they can't just sell and move into a better home because the price increased, because everyone's price has increased. So what actually makes sense, though, is refinancing their mortgage so they get a lower interest rate. So essentially, that's what's going on here. Instead of moving to a different place, because all places are now very expensive, what they're doing is cutting down on the interest rate, that's or their mortgage rate, as it's called, so they end up paying less in total of the loan. Plus, there's the other, the added fact, right, that in the middle of a pandemic, that's not really the time that you want to give up your home, right, that you've been in for a while, right? It's going to sort of decrease that sort of risk-taking and relocation uh, in favor of smaller projects like expanding an office or something like that. On the other hand, we see a lot of people moving out of California. So what do we know? Uh, but yeah, there's like out of California and New York, right, as we talked about last episode, uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, in, for California and New York in particular, right? And like with incre- latest increases in tax that we're seeing in New York, right? Agree that there's confounding factors for why folks would be moving down south. Oh, okay, that makes sense. I, I think the main confusion for me is I do get the fact that although their home price would increase, allowing them to sell it for more, that I thought because even though the fact that whatever house they decide to purchase in the future would increase in price, it would kind of even out. But I get the fact that you can refinance more and the mortgage rates would make sense for uh, why people would hold on to their homes, I think. Another question I have is how do low interest rates relate to whether or not you should move? I thought, if anything, lower interest rates would mean that they can take out loans with less financial consequences. It definitely does matter, right? And it hits both the supply and demand sides of the equation. Because, well, first, on the supply side, people who are choosing, like we talked about just then, about choosing to put the house on the market or not, they also face the option of instead of selling it, right, just taking advantage of these low interest rates and refinancing the mortgage, right, and like pursuing developments like 
within their home, like adding an office, adding an extra bedroom, something like that. Uh, so these low interest rates constrict supply. And on the demand side, if it's cheaper, if the borrowing costs are lower to take out a loan, right, to buy a house, more people are going to go and want to buy a house. And so you're going to have a demand increase at the same time. So these low interest rates have really been the perfect sort of confluence of factors, right, uh, hitting both supply and demand and making, uh, making sure that there's this sort of shortage, massive shortage of housing supply. That makes sense. Okay. this I actually noticed that this ties into how we talked about mortgage rates last episode. I remember Allison specifically saying that mortgage rates is basically an in- interest rate in itself. And so that being low would allow people to refinance, which led me to my third question, which you already answered, which is what does the article mean by refinancing? But I guess that just means home improvement. If you're able to take out loans, you can do more with your no, house. So refinancing specifically is let's say you take out a mortgage for your house. And it was for a million dollars. I know this is you know way too high, but I'm trying to simplify it for the numbers. Right. So you have a, a house for a million dollars, and in total, at the loan that you took out originally, you would end up paying three hundred thousand uh, dollars in interest. But then mortgage rates lower. So if, if you refinance, all of a sudden, you would only end up you already paid a hundred thousand of the interest, but now out of those two hundred thousand, because the interest rate is far lower you would, for example, only pay $110,000 in interest. So essentially what it is, is you, you take that loan that you had, you repay the entire thing and have a new mortgage at a lower interest rate. That's what refinancing is. I see. Okay, how does that, I guess, so if you pay the amount of interest you already owe, then you adopt to the new market's interest rate? Is that what that means? You take out a loan to repay the old loan. I see. Yeah. So the old loan is what you, your current mortgage you take out basically a new mortgage, use it to repay the old one, and you're just repaying whatever you owe with a lower interest rate. Okay, that makes sense. And actually, there's another reason for why uh, new home construction has lagged behind the, behind current demand. So uh, beyond just this explosion in demand, and actually, there's another reason for why you're seeing, as you noted, this lagging behind demand of new home construction. So beyond just this explosion in demand that we've talked about, and beyond the reasons for why this demand hasn't been met by supply of existing homes going onto the market. Like beyond all of that, you've got the simple fact that at the beginning of this pandemic, right, a lot of businesses, a lot of these construction firms laid off uh, skilled labor, right? And they didn't, they like closed up shop, right? And they didn't expect this massive like burst of demand to pop through this early, right? And so right now, the industry is just facing this lack of labor. They're facing at the same time, rising material costs. And this all means that the average new home, right, is $26,000 costlier to build, which means that you've got this this added thing, right, where a lot of construction firms are actually scaling back, back their construction, which is just which is just compounding the problem that we're seeing on the demand side. Yeah, that's crazy. And it, it seems like it would be a chain, right? Like if you have a low amount of w- workers in general, then you have like a low amount of workers in all parts of the process of home home building, like construction building. And so I guess as a result, everything would cost more, which would make everything else cost more, I guess, right? Would mm-hmm. that be correct? Yeah. So essentially, because construction is more expensive, then the housing prices are going to go up because it's being less built, et cetera, et cetera. So as long as there is no an additional external factor, that knock-on effect is exactly how it works. Okay. And this actually, to abstract this a little bit, I do remember us, I think our first episode, we talked about inflation. And at that point, I, I came to the position that oh, like inflation doesn't seem to be like that big of a problem. I guess I'm wondering if this kind of chain happens, why wouldn't that cause a kind of inflation in the economy? 
because housing prices aren't the sole determinant of inflation rate measurement. They're just so, one part of the economy. Yeah. yeah. So inflation right. is a whole range of goods, you know, that's as far as measurement. So what you would need is not just the housing to go be more expensive. You need everything to be more expensive. But I do remember also uh, us talking about why... Um, I remember asking, I guess, why inflation would be measuring everything in the economy as opposed to specific things. And I, I remember it being said that, you know, like prices in general tend to rise with one another. Um, and I guess that isn't always true. Or um, So if it's a sector-specific push-up in prices, then no, they wouldn't all rise together. Needs to, So when they all rise together, there has to be a kind of a macroeconomic push on it. Here, it's kind of specific to the sector, so it's slightly different. Yeah, like, yes, Trius, like we told you in the first, in all, all the way back in the first recording that, yes, there can be knock-on effects, right? If it's if we're seeing it in a few sectors, right, this massive push in prices and it's severe, yeah, that can translate into actually affecting the overall economy, right? Yeah. But in this case, it's just too small to actually, like, uh, bring about any fears of inflation. Although, right, one reason for these rising prices, low, in- low interest rates, is a big driver of potential inflation, right? So people are worried that the root cause of the main, one of the main root causes behind these rising home prices could also be uh, the root cause of excessive inflation in coming That's years. That's what I was going to ask as well, because it seems like the fundamental idea that labor would be lower because uh, a lot of like businesses aren't opening up or um, aren't being, aren't, didn't foresee a need to be as productive. I, I would imagine that would apply to everyone, but... Yeah, no, that's interesting. If if it's true that this doesn't have that much of an impact, I think I maybe even double down on my position that inflation isn't as big of a deal as we think because this is like one of the more dramatic increases in home prices we've ever seen, right? We'll definitely come back to inflation at some point in, in another episode and really focus in on it. But I'll just quickly say a few words right now on like the sort of issue of like how it isn't actually obvious how inflation hurts the economy, right? Because I, it's it's really really complicated, right? And like, I it definitely wasn't obvious to me before I studied economics, right? Like until I studied economics for a long time. Now the issue the issue is right that like before I studied it, I would have thought that why is inflation so bad? Because yeah, if prices go up, surely wages go up in tandem with it. Like what what's so wrong with that, right? Like, I, that was my response to the sort of every man's fear about oh I worry about inflation being bad because it erodes my purchasing power. And yeah, of course that does happen sometimes, right? But that's not what you see on average. Yeah, no, I think the the main uh, kind of issue, if we're going to ignore the whole thing you're talking about, inflation is basically an issue around price fixing. So in negotiations, right, whenever whenever the first price is set, that uh, that changes the entire negotiation to be around that price. So let's say you're used to gas being a dollar per gallon. If suddenly you see it being a dollar twenty per gallon, that's going to bother you. Uh, even if your wage increases, that's still going to bother you. And that's all around the price-fixing issue. So people are going to kind of sp- spend a little less. So it's also going to have a knock-on effect on the economy and all that. In the long term, all these things work out. And what Rocco mentioned is still an issue. But there's definitely a part of it where it's just price-fixing, which is really annoying. For sure. Like, there's a behavioral aspect of that, right? Which makes these sort of menu costs, like, a problem makes it, like, really irk people when they see prices increase. But, like, beyond that, the sort of big, big, big question right now among economists is whether this theory holds. The theory is that basically prices are a way to allocate resources in the economy. They kind of signal where human resources and effort should be directed, right? 
And inflation really kind of messes that up, right? It really sort of confuses the signaling process and really messes up the allocation process, right? The question is, how big of a problem is that? It's the main fear that economists have about inflation. They don't worry about uh, wages, like real wages going down because of inflation. No, they worry about this inefficiency, right? And that's the sort of disconnect between like most people's fears about inflation and what economists worry about. I see. Okay. That makes sense. And that's something we've discussed and I bet we'll continue to discuss, but that actually helps contextualize a lot of this as well. But I want to go back to the article, which says, quote, two closely watched house price indicators released Tuesday posted double digit national price growth, demonstrating the widespread strength of the market. I was wondering, how do we generally define market strength? My first reaction um, was fear that like, you know, with the increased prices, people will not be able to afford housing. So I thought it would have a negative connotation. Do we mean market strength to be synonymous with like something like uh, market sustainability? And if so, why would it being more difficult for people to buy homes make a market more sustainable or strong? So essentially, I just want to kind of mention one thing here and then I'm going to Marco explain the specifics of it. But when it comes to how we measure, you know, the strength of the economy overall, we do that using many indicators that are kind of macro-focused. So one of which is the inflation rate. Another one mm. is, uh, for example, these housing metrics. And there's a whole range of these that you can find around, which are like unemployment. Uh, all, all, there's, there's a massive amount of these different metrics that get released by governments every year to indicate the kind of strengths and predictability. There's market confidence indicators, both from the institutional side, where it's like, I think, like, some hedge fund managers basically tell them their market confidence, and then you have ones which are driven by people. There's there's tons of these metrics that are t together used to actually indicate the market strength. I think Rocco can talk more about kind of the other side of this. Yeah, so like moving away from the macro into like when we talk in finance about like how a market is doing. Yeah, so market strength generally means that prices are doing well here. Whether we're talking about the prices of the shares in tech in a in a tech basket. Right, or whether we're talking about house prices. So here, yeah, market strength does refer to just prices going up and looking to stay that way for for a little while at least, right? Sustainability is kind of built into that, right? Because you wouldn't say that there's been market market strength if you expect the prices to just plummet after that. But the point is here, right, that you got you got this. This kind of gets into the issue of like what, how how much information do, do those prices incorporate, right? Because obviously, if everyone expected house prices to freaking plummet. Like we wouldn't view that as market strength, but the prices wouldn't be this high either, right? So the fact that the prices rose reflects, to some degree, an element of belief on the part of, of on the part of people who are pushing up the house prices, right? Reflects an element of belief that this is going to be sustained for a little while, right? So ideas of sustainability of these higher prices are kind of built into the price action that we're seeing. But this is controversial. But there's I, a lot of theory behind this. I do want to kind of say one thing here that there's a difference between market strength and market confidence. And what Rocco was kind of just talking about here at, towards the end was more leaning yeah, towards the fine. market confidence side, yep. where the market is confident in what's going on. But there is, the, you know, this whole, this goes into a massive argument about do prices actually reflect yeah. the real current state? And we're going to get into this at some point. It's a very <laughs> fun discussion. But essentially, market confidence, if you don't, don't think that the current price reflects the exact value of whatever you're looking at, at, at you know, at that exact point in time, in those cases, market confidence is separate from the actual market strength. But a lot of people argue that, well, if it's the current price, that's exactly what it's currently worth. So in those cases, market confidence and market strength would be synonyms. And I think the way Rocco presented it gives us an insight to which side of the argument he's on here. 
And like you could see this in the fact that like when you're actually measuring a market strength vigorously, right? You just look at, for example, relative strength is where you just measure uh, the ratio in prices of one asset to another, like over time, right? That, like you can find that over a quick Google, right? And that's just right there. If you would draw a distinction between the two, though, how would you typically define market strength? I guess, like, what is a typical way to conceptualize it? I would say market strength is based on the underlying asset. Market confidence is based on the people's opinion about the underlying asset. Okay. For the underlying asset, would it be, well, what about the a house, asset? a stock, your phone, anything? Okay. So and anything so higher strength would be any amount of money. Higher strength so, would mean higher price. I see. Okay. And so this can be a good or a bad thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And I actually have one one last question. The article talks about how it's clearly more difficult now for lower income people to enter the housing market and find affordable housing. What's a step to remedy this? I think there are two ways you can go about this here. Firstly, I think financial education is absolutely essential. You have a lot of people, like there, you have massive amounts of credit card debt, things like this, and there are great ways to refinance those. So people pay lower interest rates are more capable of keeping up with that. They can even build up a better credit score especially in the US, your entirely your life as far as mortgages and all this is entirely dependent on your credit score. So what you need to really focus on is financial education so people can actually afford to even get a decent mortgage. And once you have that side of it, you okay, also people are going to start saving a little bit and all that. But of course, if they don't have the spare income, you know, how, what are they going to do? That's still not going to help them. And I think for those, you know, in those situations, that's why you have things like the government kind of controlling the first buyer sides of it. And there's a lot of kind of little things you can do to have small effects. But there are a few big ones that I'm going to let Rocco talk about those. A big thing for me, right, and I was reading earlier on, like I think two weeks ago, about how there's just a huge amount of structural inequality, especially when we bring in the, the racial dimension uh, when it comes to the housing market, right? So like you have issues where uh, black people pay way too much in property taxes, right, compared to in white neighborhoods on the houses right that kind of locks out really prohibits uh, black families from passing on a home to uh, to the next generation right and just it's a home is like such a important and popular building block of the wealth that you leave to another generation right to a future generation right it's just it's just incredibly important right so beyond like really tackling these structural inequalities right where we've had past injustice that locked black families and other minority families out of out of the housing market or fixing the way we levy prop property taxes, there's a lot that can be done there, right? And part of the remedy here could also involve like, actually subsidizing uh, first-home buyers to a greater extent, right? And maybe to a certain extent, there is, like, beyond all these fears and, like, these possible solutions I've talked about, maybe there is also a bit of truth to the idea that we're overly obsessed with homes, like getting that nice single-family home in the suburbs, right, and passing that on to our kids. Right? It's a really nice part of, like, a sort of The sort of interconscious like, dream that we've built of what a perfect life looks like, right? If you're like middle middle class, but it's not necessarily the most wise sort of financial investment you can make, right? Because instead of just leaving a house to your kids, you can just leave them a stock portfolio, right? You can leave them other things as well. And oftentimes, like I, I know a lot of people for whom it definitely wasn't the best idea to buy a house, right? It was would it be much better if they'd invested that money to the stock market? The thing here, like you're you're missing an entire side of this argument, you know, stock portfolio and all that. That's all great. But those people have to live somewhere. I think a house is a very useful tool for passing on, you know, the initial wealth. Because look at it this way. Your home, let's say you, you inherit a house. And let's just start when you're 18 just to make, sorry, 20, just to make the math super simple, right? 
you're going to pay about a thousand bucks a month. That's $12,000 a year. Let's round that down to 10,000 for some repairs and property taxes and stuff like that. Now, 10,000 over what? 10 years is 100,000. Over 30 years, that's $300,000. That's a lot of money. And if people can invest those as opposed to spending them on their housing, it will make a massive difference. So I think, you know, to an extent, yeah, stocks and all that are a potentially better alternative in some cases. But for that first home, property is a massive difference. Pro like having property as an inheritance when it's the first home you have, it will actually change so many people's lives. I think if, if it comes down to one thing to pass on to your children, if you don't have any other assets, a house will make a massive difference for them because it gives them security. So they can go on and spend that little bit of extra money on starting a business and they are they don't have to worry about will I have somewhere to live tomorrow because they own that house. You, they, they, so they can take on more risk. It shall let them make more money because with risk come higher returns. Those That extra money you can just invest it in the stock market instead of paying all that rent, which is also going to make a massive difference. So I think all of these things, like you're right, you know, stocks are a great inheritance, whatever's a great inheritance, but a home makes such a difference. I'm just going to say that you're overselling it here a little bit, right? Because if you have the proper financial education, of course, that's a big if. And that gets back to your point about how you need to teach people how to really look at the markets and really consider like the, these their different avenues of investment, right? But if you, there, this is very much, this what you just said, is very much contingent on what actual parameters there are and like it's not hard to find examples where you'd be much better off if instead of buying a home 30 years ago you just rented and you invested your salary like your savings into the stock market instead and left that to your kids instead like it's and you it's not hard to find cases like this it's really dependent on what geography you're looking at what your salary is right how exactly you're planning on investing in the stock market right but it's definitely very much more contingent than you're, than you're making it making it sound I, I have to disagree with you there but let's let's move on <laughs> yeah, no, that's an interesting discussion too. I guess I would ask, what is the overall benefit to having people not really pass on their homes? Like, how would that help other people, uh, or is it just something that's financially like advisable for the individual themselves or the family themselves? So, if people don't pass on homes, this is that's going to do one thing. It's going to increase liquidity in the market because if everyone's like, all right. Let's just assume everyone knows exactly when they'll die. And the day before they die, they sell that house. That means there's going to be a massive increase in the volume of houses going around the market that are being traded. What does volume do? Volume leads to price discovery. We've talked about this with stocks. It's the same with housing. So I think that would really help get a more representative price on general property because that increased volume. But on the other hand, like what what is the let's let's say you know whoever inherits the money doesn't own a home or doesn't have a place to live well what are they going to do they're probably going to use that money to also buy a house or get something uh, rent a property because they're still going to need somewhere to live so there is kind of a two-sided uh kind of two sides to the card here where on one side well that increased volume is going to great to great for price discovery on the other hand it's going to also kind of increase demand because people are no longer inheriting the home a lot more people are that, uh, that would have gotten a home instead now have to take that money and go buy one or they're going to continue renting or stuff like this, which is going to have also a demand increase. But I think the increase in volume will do so much for price discovery that that would be very interesting to see. Huh, that's interesting. I think I think I'm actually going to wrap it up there. I guess I just quickly want to go over like the three 
main things that I heard, actually four main things that I heard as potential steps to remedy this. And so I think as someone listening and for me myself, a big thing to keep in mind is we do learn these things partly in trying to understand what would make this world better. You know, so I think the four things I heard to remedy this is one financial education, which we didn't touch much on, but I think this is something that maybe needs to be integrated more universally in our education. But then there's two, levy property taxes, something we also didn't talk too much about, but that's, I'll save that for, I guess, a taxation topic, you know. Um, then there's three, subsidizing first home buyers. And four, lastly, this kind of idea of getting rid of the cultural practice of handing down your home to your kids, essentially, right? And so these all seem like steps to, I guess, remedy the current situation of affordable housing. Yeah, and it's always super unfortunate to think about just the fact that people can't really afford houses. So many people can't afford houses. And even if they can, they can't sustain uh, living in their own house. So that's, I, I guess, like these four solutions are things that I find personally very important to explore further down the line. But just going over uh, other things that we talked about with regarding to home prices increasing in this article as a whole, we talked largely about new home construction lagging behind demand and the different factors within that, as well as how some people feel the need to hold on to their homes while other people see this as a great opportunity to actually find a home. And then we talked about how lower interest rates are related to whether or not people should buy houses along with what refinancing means and what's the importance of that when considering the current state of the housing market. Additionally, we talked about market strength and how there's a whole debate apparently about market strength that we'll get to in the future, but there's this kind of idea of market strength that doesn't necessarily have to do with what's good or bad for people or consumers, but there's this whole, I guess, tension between like what is market strength and whether or not market strength incorporates market confidence or if they're the same thing or how, how related they actually are. So keeping all of these things in mind, I think I learned a lot about uh, the housing market as a whole since I knew nothing. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was a important, I think. But yeah, thank you for listening. And I think this is an important discussion to have. Mm -hmm.